And in fact, Newsweek did a article about a month ago that pastors said that they have parishioners coming to them and saying, why are you teaching this turn the other cheek, be meek, care for the poor? I want to do what Donald Trump says. That's what our church should be. Our church should be about Donald Trump. Get revenge, attack people, kill people who've done something you think did something wrong without a trial. This is very deeply disturbing. Hello. This is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is David K. Johnston. He is a celebrated investigative reporter and author who's worked over a long career for most of our great newspapers and has a bunch of books to his name, many of them bestsellers. David has been investigating and writing about Donald Trump since 1988, and his latest book is called The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself. It's worth your read, and I really enjoyed hearing some of David's life story and asking him about his work and about politics. It's a very good episode. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with David K. Johnston of The Big Cheat. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. David, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is David K. Johnston. I'm a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author. I'm not a lawyer, but I have been on the faculty at Syracuse University College of Law for 15 years. I used to teach the law of the ancient world. I now teach undergraduates who want to go to law school the theory and principles of law. And I'm perhaps best known, unfortunately, for writing three and a half books, two of them international bestsellers, about Donald Trump whom I have covered for more than 35 years. I've heard of the guy. Why do you say, unfortunately? I'd rather be known for my trilogy, examining how the American economy really works. Perfectly legal, still in print 20 years after it came out. Uh, won the Investigative Book of the Year Award, and it's about how our tax system isn't at all what you think, because journalists and politicians don't accurately explain it. It is a massive stealth subsidy system for many very wealthy people and corporations. And the next book in the series, Free Lunch, was about subsidies that hardly anybody knew about. Today, I find everybody seems to know that companies build uh, stores and factories with taxpayer dollars instead of their own investment money. And that's what the book exposed. And then the third book in the trilogy, The Fine Print, 
documented the rise of monopolies and oligopolies with, of course, devastating effects on competition, which is central to capitalism, and consumer benefits. So perfectly legal, free lunch, the fine print, all still in print years after they came out. That's, that's quite impressive. One of the things that I noticed in some of the biographies that you have here and there online is that you have a very early entry into reporting as a young man. Can you tell me about that? What's the real story there about how you got into it? In the fall of 1966, when I was a senior in high school and married, I began writing for first one and then two traditional weekly newspapers in Santa Cruz, California. And my work, because I was not trained as a journalist, was not like what you read in the local daily. Uh, one of the reporters there asked me to stop doing what I was doing because he didn't understand how to do it and his bosses were not happy. <laughs> and mostly I, what I did was simple math. Uh, my best example was uh, the school board, whose chairman, by the way, never figured out I was a student. The school board one day handed out a press release that, and I'm doing this from memory, Next year, property taxes on the average Santa Cruz home worth $34,211 will increase by $43.02. I just looked at that and said, that's useless information. What if you have a $25,000 house or a $50,000 house? So I turned it over and using long division, created a index, a percentage. And I wrote, next year, your property taxes will go up by, I think it was $1.42. For every $1,000, the county says your home is worth. And the publisher of this little paper, who had owned a, a daily and sold it when he was young and was bored, so he started this paper, calls me up on the phone and tells me to come in right away. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. And I arrive, and he says, well, letters. We, we have letters. We, we, we don't get letters. We're, we're a shopper. We have letters. And, and I looked at him, and he said, they, they really like what you wrote. So anyway... Within about nine months of starting that, right, at, literally the week after I graduated from Knight High School, the San Jose Mercury recruited me. I went to a job interview. At the time, the youngest reporter at the paper was 24, 25. They made fun of me literally for an hour. <laughs> I went back every three weeks on the advice of the person who recruited me. And the next opening occurred nine months later, and they hired me. Within a year, well, within a couple of weeks, I was on the front page. Within two years, I had solved my first murder case. That's a pretty good entry into the world of journalism. What was it that got you interested in writing those things when you're still in high school, before you even were hired? What was it in the family or what, what was in, in uh, your... I, I had gone to work full-time at the age of 13. So I went to school full-time. I had four paper routes in the morning, three in the afternoon. I washed dishes. I babysat. I did all sorts of things to help my parents. My father was a 100% disabled veteran of the war, although like many disabled people, he worked until he couldn't, and then he died. And my mother was a disowned heiress of a Minnesota timber fortune who never understood how to live without money. And my original goal was to age uh, 19, uh, to join the LAPD as what's called a khaki officer. It's a clerical job. You wear a little uniform, but you're a cler clerk. 
And if they like you, you get into the academy. And then at 21, you get sworn in as a cop. And I was going to become a homicide detective. I got recruited unexpectedly by this weekly paper to write first a column about the high school and then to go cover meetings for them for minimum wage plus 20 cents an inch, which would be about a buck 60 today an inch of copy. The Mercury paid uh, very well because it had a union contract. Uh, the day I was hired, the day I turned 19 and a half, I went to the local bureau in Santa Cruz where I lived, a dark office that took up the entire floor above a drugstore because like most downtowns, it was dying at the time. And I opened up the union contract and I called my wife and I said, honey, we're going to be rich. In four years, we're going to make $240 a week. My dad is always telling me what he paid for a hamburger in college and things like that. Yeah. Well, I was making with my salary as a first year reporter, my overtime, my war orphans benefits to go to college and some side jobs that I did here and there, like polling. I was making $80,000 a year in today's money when I was 19 years old. And I, so I went from, you know, not having a dime in my pocket and literally a hole in the bottom of my shoe. There's a picture of me with that hole at the bottom of the shoe to suddenly being able to get by. Cause if you don't have anything, even that kind of salary, it takes a couple of years to catch up. But I was a homeowner three years later with my own money. And I remember going to the introduction meeting for kindergarten parents in Sunnyvale, which is in the heart of Silicon Valley. And my wife and I were the youngest parents by six or eight years. And we were the only homeowners. And one of the one people said, oh, so your parents bought you a home. And I go, no, I subsidized my parents. I bought this with my own money. The Silicon Valley engineers and, and whatnot were like stunned. 18 is very young to be married, particularly today. What's the circumstances of, of that? We wanted to get both of us out of our households. And yeah, that uh, seems like what people did. And we, plan we you know, had a plan. Unfortunately, after 14 years, the marriage fell apart. But I remember reading when I was a kid a, a biography of Ty Cobb, and I think the first chapter was Young Man in a Hurry. It sounds like you were like that. You came to independence so early. I mean, the kids these days, a lot of them, at least in certain class, are often going way into their 20s in dependency. I stopped being a kid when I was about eight and realized that my father was dying. And I was in a very eager to grow up and to show my father before he died that I would make something of myself. And I did. My byline was on the front page of the San Jose Mercury like six or eight months before he died. I was the kind of kid who read things like the autobiography of Lincoln Steffens. I read about muckraking journalists and progressive politicians and things like that as a youngster. Your career seems like it's in the same vein as as people like that to some degree. Although you're going you're going up through standard newspapers for a long time. Tell me about how you thought about your career, investigative journalism, these papers, what's kind of the arc of it? Well, the, the Portland Oregonian in reviewing one of my books some years ago said that my work was the equal of the three great muckrakers, Ida Tarbell, Lincoln Steffens, and Upton Sinclair, and made the point that there were bigger reforms as a result of their work because Americans had a different attitude about uh, politics back then. Uh, they felt more empowered 
uh, back then. So I did not grow up studying or thinking about being a journalist. I thought I would become, as I said, an LAPD homicide detective and then become a prosecutor, maybe LA County District Attorney. And of course, I didn't live in LA County. I lived in Santa Cruz, but that was the big, you know, 10 million people live there now. It's bigger than a number of states. And along came this other opportunity, which paid better and was a lot more interesting. I've thought often, especially because of the murder cases I've solved, about what would have happened if I had become a detective. I would have been one of those very good detectives the bosses hate because I'm not very good at compliance. My wife, who's read all of the Bosch novels written by someone who followed me at the LA Times covering the management of the LAPD. I I was the first reporter to seriously over a period of time, investigate how the LAPD really operated. And I always said to my wife, gee, if I was a novelist, we'd make a fortune. Well, I'm not. But Michael Connolly, who had the same job after me, was, and he's done a brilliant, brilliant job. I would have been an excellent detective, but I would have been a miserable human being. I'm always curious, because I don't know the field, how one gets information about people and institutions that don't want you to get that information. Sure. Well, no large institution can operate without data. So for several years after I left the New York Times, I went to China to lecture and teach investigative reporting. Now, it might seem strange that a communist dictatorship would promote investigative reporting. They, of course, don't want it at the national level or perhaps even the provincial level, but at the county level, British system, counties, or below, Investigative reporting actually helps the dictatorship maintain control. The last lecture I gave in China was in a city called Fusan, where about 99% of the air conditioners in that country are made. And the young journalists were complaining that the local companies wouldn't tell them anything. So I threw up on a screen. We had about 1,700 journalists in the room. I threw up on a screen a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission document of one of the biggest companies in Fusan, And it showed the 10 biggest customers it had, how much money each of those customers paid this firm, what percentage of their total sales this was. And I said, there's a great deal of information that's right there in front of you. You don't have to have it be hidden. So police departments keep extensive records. The LAPD chief, Daryl Gates, who was quite famous, insisted once that there was a huge crime wave enveloping Los Angeles. So I went over to the police department and went through the police report records, which at the time were kept on green ledger sheets like you see in a movie from the 1800s. And I showed that the entire increase in crime in Los Angeles was the theft of blaupunkt radios from luxury German cars. And if you (laughs) removed the blaupunkt radio thefts from the data, crime was down like 6%, I think. It was a front page story of the kind that irritated the chief. But organizations have to put out data. And there's a couple of problems. Most journalists are enumerate. They're highly literate, but they're enumerate. Secondly, most journalism is not what I do. Most journalism is an accurate recounting of the official version of events. If your local newspaper or radio station says the mayor, the governor, the head of some company said X yesterday, the local police said Y, you can rely on that. That's going to be an accurate account of what they said. It doesn't mean that it's the truth. It means it's the official version of events. 
I'm in the unofficial version of events. And to do that, you have to have confidence in what you're doing. I'm the former president of our uh, society, investigative reporters and editors. I often tell young journalists, you can write all sorts of things that are false about the cops as long as you glorify them. But you get one comma, literally one comma out of place, and there'll be an effort to fire you. So you have to have a great deal of confidence and you have to be very careful. And you have to know the principle and theory that underlies whatever you're writing about. So when I started to write about the LAPD, the very first thing I did was go to a library to look into, well, where do police come from? They, they don't exist in the ether. So where, who came up with this idea? What's the history of this? And then I read Parker on Policing. Parker was the police chief of LA, Bill Parker, for 16 years. The old police headquarters was named for him. And he wrote a book with Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek. Roddenberry was his driver. And if you want to rise in a big city police department, the very best job to get is the chief's driver. And if you read Parker on policing, still in print, 60 some years later, you will see that some of the chapters read like mud and some of them are beautifully written and you can guess which of the two men wrote them. Parker, by the way, was the model for the character Spock in Star Trek because Parker always said he operated from pure logic with no emotion, to which I observe it's because he poured his emotions down the neck of a gin bottle. That position as president of the investigative reporters organization, that's a, a kind of a wide lens into the profession as it exists. How has it changed over your time reporting and what's the kind of state of that? My guess would be it's not as well funded as it used to be and in a more trouble, but what, what's the truth? Well, it, it, it's a complicated picture. When I started doing investigative reporting in the mid sixties, there were a handful of people who did this kind of work. There were two guys at the Arizona Republic, one of whom later became my boss at the Detroit Free Press. Uh, there was essentially nobody at the San Francisco Chronicle. The San Jose Mercury would now and then pop up with an investigation, but they didn't have a dedicated investigative reporter. Following Watergate, there was a surge in this activity. In 1976, Don Bowles, the partner of my future boss, was murdered in Arizona because of his investigations into the mafia in Arizona. They blew up his car, which he had expected them to kill him. He told his partner, my boss, Bill Meek, that he expected that. A group of investigative reporters got their newspapers to pay for them to go out to Arizona to write something called the Arizona Project to try and solve the murder. And eventually there were indictments. There was a great deal of investigative reporting and well-funded at some newspapers, while others did nothing. I went to the Detroit Free Press from San Jose, which on its face sounds like a bizarre thing to do, because it was doing so much and such tough investigative reporting. And while I was there for three years, most fun I ever had, I actually caused a broadcast chain, the second most profitable in America to go out of business because they were putting up fake news reports and all sorts of other misconduct, which was proven in 11 years of litigation, and they had to go out of business. In the late 90s, you began to see cutbacks in budgets that were significant. A big rise, however, in TV investigative reporting, a lot of which is you know, simple and easy stuff to do, not 
as with the LA Times, which once assigned two reporters to a project that took five years, that's 10 years of reporter time, Philadelphia Inquirer, whose famous team, Barlett and Steele, often spent two, three years on a single series. And TV stations really took off with this because they realized it would get them uh, audiences. The New York Times pours enormous amounts of money into investigative reporting, and you will see these huge projects that sometimes in the print paper go on as they did when I was there for two or four solid pages of text, graphics, and photos. But at many, many papers, especially medium-sized and smaller papers, there's no budget for anything like that. At one point, a couple of years ago, I wrote about how the Long Beach Press-Telegram had one reporter to cover a city with more people than Miami. The Salinas Californian, the New York Times reported it within the last year, has not had a reporter for several years. And as the writer of the piece brilliantly put it, the only live news in the Salinas Californian are the paid death notices. It is a mixed bag. There's still a great deal of investigative reporting going on at a handful of big institutions. The LA Times, where I work, the New York Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, Bloomberg, AP. And then we have new organizations like ProPublica, which is a huge newsroom all across the country that has done for years now extraordinary work because they're well-funded by big donations. When you're working at these series of of sizable newspapers, are you getting assigned all of your stories? Are you proposing them? How are the topics chosen? Right after I came to the San Jose Mercury, and I was hired to work in a bureau on the peninsula, sitting next to me were Robert Lindsay, who later for 20 years was the West Coast Bureau Chief of the New York Times and wrote The Falcon and the Snowman, if you've seen the, the book or the movie, and Pete Carey, who won a Pulitzer for bringing down Marcos in the Philippines. But at the time, they, they did not win these awards. As you can imagine, they were like, what is this kid doing here? It was like insulting to them for about two weeks. And then they decided that, that I was okay. One of my colleagues back then said to me uh, one morning, you know, there are two kinds of reporters in a newspaper. I perk up, listen, and he says, those who come to work and have a note in their typewriter telling them what to do. And those who tell their bosses what they're going to write about, you want to be in the latter group. And I've never applied for a job in my life until I was almost this age. And I proposed a particular university hire me and they didn't want to do so. But all of my news jobs, people came to me, even the New York Times. And I always made it clear after the Mercury, when I got my foot in the door, that I'm going to do what I want to do. And if you don't like the idea I put forward, I've got 10 more ready to go. I once at the Detroit Free Press got a call from the Sunday editor on Saturday evening saying, well, you have quite a day in tomorrow's paper. I think I count seven stories on the front page and the second front page, which was page three of the paper. And I said, excuse me. She said, well, wasn't this your idea and that your idea in the following? And I said, yeah. And she said, stop doing that. And I said, why? And she said, you want to be an editor, be an editor. It's not your job to assign people. And I said, I didn't assign anybody. I gave away ideas. And she said, well, stop doing it. And I thought that was one of the dumbest things I ever heard. She went on to become the editor of a very big paper, by the way, from assistant city editor, beyond the stories with my name on them. There are thousands of articles that I've 
you know, said, well, I'm never going to get to this or it's not my area of expertise or I'm not that interested. And I've handed them off to other reporters. One such person took pieces of mine and turned them into two separate Pulitzer Prizes by pursuing them further than I had. So most journalists operate from a directive, you know, go to City Hall, go ask about this. If there was a, a big story, I would do whatever was needed. And in fact, at the LA Times, even when I was very much on the outs with editors because of all the exposés I had done, when sheriff's deputies went on strike, when we had a tornado, which is unheard of in Los Angeles, 29 reporters in one case and 31 in the others were in the field. I was the rewrite person who wrote the story because everybody knew that I could take lots and lots and lots of information and turn it quickly into a good story. So except for when there was some huge breaking news or as happens typically uh, once every month or six weeks, you're assigned a duty day. You have to do whatever is the general assignment need of the day. Except for those, I've always done what I wanted to do. And eventually you wear out your welcome with editors if what I want to do means they've got to deal with lawyers and complaints and people who say this doesn't belong in the newspaper, even if you're 100% right. So there's something about you that was unafraid to go after institutions that seems like kind of industrious about the work and curious. What do you think are the characteristics that make a good investigative reporter? Well, first and foremost, you have to be skeptic, a serious skeptic. I don't mean skeptical at the level that most journalists are. I mean, really skeptical. There's a saying among investigative reporters. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we are professional skeptics. And I don't mean at the level that all reporters are skeptical. I mean, we really seriously uh, dig into things. Secondly, fearlessness is a uh, component of that. One of the murder cases I solved, I confronted a vicious black-on-white killer and suddenly realized nobody knew where I was when he said to me, I want to get something in my bedroom. And I had visions of a large gun. So I followed him in there figuring, well, if I made a mistake and I'm dead, it's going to be a, one hell of a fight. And in fact, he just wanted to show me a photograph. But, you know, you, you can't operate from fear. Firefighters run towards a blaze, police officers toward bullets, investigative reporters toward trouble. Secondly, you have to be perfectly accurate. As in when I mentioned before, you get a comma wrong about the cops in a critical story and they'll try to get you fired over it. And those are the, the, the essential ingredients. And you have to be patient. I mean, there are stories that I stuck with, in some cases, across newspapers for more than a decade. You also have a non-standard education path. Can you talk about that? Because, you know, like I have a niece who went to Yale, wrote for the Yale Daily News, and now works at the Chicago Tribune, which is kind of a, like that, a textbook. Yes. When I started out, the editors I worked for in the 60s, many of them had been soldiers in World War II. A few fellow reporters, pretty aged, had been in World War I. And they were almost overwhelmingly blue-collar backgrounds. Journalism was a step up in their life, uh, as it was for me. When I was 10 years old, 9 years old, um, Stanford University recruited me, and my parents said no. They thought it would make me a freak. You're an unusually smart kid, is what? Yeah. And, I, coming, and yeah. I was not there to be a student in the college. I was there to be studied as part of a 100-year-long project they've been doing with a bunch of smart kids. 
And so uh, when I finished um, high school, I went to junior college because it was cheap and nearby and wasn't learning anything. I did not literally learn anything I didn't know. And I sat next to a guy named Charlie Zabo and I said this to him and he said, well, take upper division courses. And being young and stupid, I said, what's that? And he said, well, even though this is a two-year college, they offer 300 level and 400 level junior and senior classes. And I came back the next week and said, yeah, but you have to have prerequisites to get it. And he says, ah, he says, professors will waive it. You just tell them you know, who you are. So I started doing that. I went to college year round because I wanted to get my full government benefits for seven and a half years. So including the summer semester, I was a full-time reporter at the Mercury. I was writing a couple of freelance pieces each week for the New York Times. And I was taking 21 units at three different colleges. Anyhow, I, I got a fellowship to the University of Chicago. I took doctoral level economics, where I was detested by the professors who let me in because I had unorthodox views and questions. Did they all detest you or, or uh, two was that of them, exaggeration? Two of them in particular. Yeah. Um, because I kept asking questions that undermined the things that uh, the University of Chicago's economics is all based on algebra. And I was of the view that, well, algebra will explain a lot of things, but human beings don't operate from algebra. Was it a conservative department back then? Well, the University of Chicago is, I mean, it's the, the dominant school in America. Economic papers are all based on all things being equal. And then they show you this algebra and the algebra works perfectly. The problem is human beings are not purely rational creatures. They're not the imaginary Spock. And I would constantly say, yeah, but what about this behavior? I mean, look at me. At that point, I had, I'm 24 years old and have five children. That isn't logical. Anyhow, eventually, when my GI Bill money ran out, I took a course at Michigan State from a full university professor who made you buy her book, which isn't a good idea. It's a general rule to take courses where you have to buy the professor's book. I use some of my books for my students, but I give them to them. And I kept correcting her every week on mistakes. In particular, in this class, we were studying two huge scandals in Michigan. And she told the class that they should read the local paper in the Detroit News. Well, they were my stories. They were in the Detroit Free Press. And this professor never asked why I kept knowing things she didn't know and pointing out errors in the stories. I also pointed out she had a lot of mistakes about the Michigan State Constitution, which I had read and studied. And one day she says, uh, just before the end of the semester, Mr. Johnston, I think it's become rather clear that you know this subject better than I do. So may I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, what are you doing here? And I said, great idea. Great question. Picked up my knapsack, went to the academic office, said, I'd like to get my diploma. I said, I've got enough units, I think, for two or three degrees. And they come back and they say, well, no, you haven't earned a degree. And I said, why not? I said, well, for starters, you've never taken a writing course. And I said, why do I? That. And I said, well, you have to prove you can write. And I reached in my knapsack and I put a book on it and I said, will this do? What's that? It's a required textbook at this university. Oh, you read it? I said, no, look at the cover. I wrote it. And anyway, they, they told me they would give me a degree if I went back and took 35 units of freshman and sophomore studies. And I went, goodbye. And I've been on the faculty. I'm not an adjunct. I've been on the faculty of the Syracuse University College of Law. And I was on the faculty of the business school for eight years. So it hasn't held me back. 
I've lectured at universities on every continent except Antarctica, which doesn't have any. And I've been a paid speaker at many of the best universities in America. What would be your advice to a young person in a hurry? Because very few people could pull that off, I think. Do, do you think it's, it's, you would say, just go get your degree? Or would you say, do it my way? I would say, learn from a journalism school organization. That's the hardest thing in journalism is organization. And then go learn something useful, statistics, political science, chemistry. I think there's an enormous need for a first-rate, across-the-board water reporter on the order of the richest working journalist in history, Martha Stewart. You know, everything she did was perfect. She never dropped a chicken on the floor and picked it up while she was cooking like Julia Child. She was totally polished. Secondly, I would say, don't do what the herd does. When everyone zigs, you should zag. Recognize that the stories that matter are never announced. They ooze. You have to figure them out from what's going on around you. And marry someone with a good income to support your hobby, unless you, like Martha Stewart, become very wealthy. So I, I kind of think that you were an entrepreneurial reporter. Yes, I, I much prefer thinking of myself as an enterprise reporter because they're my ideas and they're things that I see that aren't being reported on and not being reported on ways that I think are meaningful. So when I went to Atlantic City in 1988 to cover the casino industry because I believed it was going to spread across America, which it did, every month all the East Coast newspapers would run a story saying the biggest win in Atlantic City was at the Trump Plaza or the Harris Casino. And of course, what the casino wins is what the players lost. So I immediately wrote, last month, gamblers lost the most money. (laughs) And variations of that language. And that continued for the seven years I was there as a reporter and editor. And then literally the month after I left, they went right back to writing it the same way everybody else does. The principle being If you're writing about banking or an airline, a handful of people own a bank, a relative handful of people own an airline through stocks in them, vastly larger numbers have a bank account or buy a plane ticket. So why would you write about it from the point of view of the investors or the executives? It makes much more sense to write from the point of view of the bank account holder or the passenger in the plane, and yet pick up the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the AP, listen to the TV news. It's almost always done from the other perspective, which is the smaller audience. What was the first time that you wrote something about Trump? Oh, it would have been in June of 1988. I met him for a shake hands and say hello. And a few days later, sat down with him for a long interview where he just lied through his teeth to me with the connivance of a couple of his guys whom I had gotten to know in just a matter of days, I had written down four questions. And Trump assumed that the facts and the questions were true. And my immediately having just come from Los Angeles said to myself, oh my God, this guy is like those TV ads. Hi, we're the California psychics. We're the real psychics. Do you want to know if your boyfriend is going to marry you or your husband's going to leave you? Call California psychics. And that's what he was doing. He was listening to clues in what I said to give an answer he thought I wanted. And these executives told me right off the bat, Donald doesn't know anything 
about the casino business. And I was like, come on, he owns two casinos. He later owned four in Atlantic City. And I said, how can he possibly not know anything about the business? Well, he didn't know anything about the business. Steve Wynn told me the same thing and state officials. And it was astonishing how over time, what I learned is that Donald literally doesn't know anything. When he went as president to Honolulu, he didn't understand what the USS Arizona Memorial is for. He didn't know that Finland is a country and not part of Russia. He claims to be the world's greatest expert on 23 different subjects, which would be impossible. But one of them is tax policy. And I am recognized around the world for my knowledge of taxes. Donald testified under oath once about what he knew, because he says no one in the history of the world knows more about taxes than Donald Trump. And he was asked, well, well, what do you know about accounting, Mr. Trump? I don't know anything about accounting. You don't know anything about accounting? I don't know anything. Are you sure about that? You, you understand how accounting? No, I don't know anything about accounting. You cannot know tax without knowing accounting. I had to learn accounting to be able to write what I've written that's made me well known about tax. He just makes things up. And he's gotten away with it his whole life. And people like me who challenge him, he threatens all the time that he's going to sue you. He's called me at home more times than I can count or to my face told me he's going to sue me. And I always just look at him very politely and say, Donald, if you think you have a case, bring it. And he never has. He's never gotten a correction. But he tells people that I make stuff up, which is, of course, what he does. I, I heard you say that he's the greatest con artist in history. And you said something also in that vein about like almost admiring his ability to create his own reality, to tell a tale. I think the whole country hasn't quite put a finger on, there's this guy who doesn't know anything, but he has talked his way into having his name on buildings, to having won the you know, won the presidency in electoral college and converting a huge number of people to a lot of lies that he's promulgated. Like, how do we understand that? I, I had a tradesman in my house today doing some work who is from a longtime family of New York Democrats, very liberal Democrats, but he was praising Donald Trump. And I was pointing out to him that the f things he was saying factually either weren't true or misleading, and you couldn't break through this. Uh... So regarding admiring Trump's con artistry, I once spent weeks with a hitman for the mob who was near the end of his life. And he just told me all these great stories and everything panned out. I'd call cops and FBI agents. And the amazing thing is when I get them on the phone, they'd say, oh, how's Harry doing? Haven't talked to him in a long time because they admired him. Harry killed people and beat people up for a living, never got arrested his whole life. That's how good he was. The cops knew he did certain things, but they could never prove. So I admired him for the horrible business he's in, but the way he did that. And the same thing with Donald. You have to admire that Donald's skill as a con artist is extraordinary. I mean, there's nobody I've ever seen like him in his, his ability, his charisma to get away with this stuff. People think he's a business genius. Well, that shouldn't surprise us because how many people understand how business really operates? How many have been in a boardroom? If you watch Understanding Business, almost any episode of The Apprentice or The Celebrity Apprentice, you'll look at this and say, that's not how business works. That's not the principles of how business works. These are terrible decisions he's making. 
And it, it's come out that, in fact, in a number of occasions, they had a terrible time cutting the show because they film hours and hours and then run these snippets. He was going in a certain direction and then he did something totally out of character. But the people don't know that should not surprise us. And it was the great, awful flaw of the New York Times in particular, where I worked, but the news media overall, they did not do of him what's called a scrub. You run for president, become a nominee. Normally, several reporters are assigned to really dig into who you are. The New York Times sent a reporter to Indonesia to find the kindergarten playmates of Barack Obama, and the same reporter to Hawaii who found and interviewed the boys who sat around smoking marijuana with him in high school. George Bush was just thoroughly scrubbed. Everything was turned up wasn't reported, unfortunately. And I did a rescrub of him when he ran for re-election, which didn't get run at all, because everything I found, you know, some obscure little place had published what it was. It's just nobody knew that. But, you know, well, it's been published, so we're not going to bring that up. I called one of my New York Times editors in the fall of 16, and I said, you need to tell people who he is. And he said, everybody knows who he is. I said, no, everybody in New York knows who he is. People in Keokuk, Iowa, and Fresno, California don't have a clue. I told him about how Donald was involved right up to his eyeballs with a major international cocaine trafficker who had pled guilty in writing in a long, long confession and was Donald's business partner and personally flew Donald in his helicopter. The people who drove the drugs, just drove the drugs from Florida to Ohio, got 20 years in prison. Donald's buddy, the, the, the king of the drug deal, he only spent 18 months behind bars. And he wasn't even behind bars. He was in a, the Metropolitan Correction Facility in New York. And this editor says, when did this happen? I said, well, basically the whole 80s. He goes, oh my God, that is so old, no one cares. Well, that's A, a ridiculous standard. But you know what the Sunday, a couple days later, front page article was in the center of the New York Times, I mean, the most valuable real estate in the New York Times, Sunday above the fold, what Hillary Clinton did in the 1970s, which by the way, was to help poor children get an education. And it was this hubris that helped Donald. And I largely blame the Times. The Times, by the way, ran a mea culpa by the publisher and the executive editor on the front page saying, we screwed up. Well, it wasn't for my lack of telling him, you're not getting this right. After he became president, the coverage got to be a lot better, really a lot better. A lot of people attack a reporter at the Times named Maggie Haberman because she hasn't been, they think, sufficiently critical of him. Her job is to listen to Trump and extract things from him as White House reporter. It's not to do what I do, which is to dissect him. And I think a lot of people don't understand this about journalism. And the reason for that, Nathaniel, is 54% of Americans read at the level of sixth grade or below. 22%, that's more than one in five, are third grade or below. Even if you're the smartest kid in the classroom in sixth grade, you don't know jack. And so there's been a horrendous decline in American education. We've saved high school football, though. Many high schools no longer have art. They no longer have drama. We have a friend of one of our grown children who lives a mile from here who was fired from her job in a school district half an hour from Rochester because as a English teacher, she had her students read To Kill a Mockingbird. They fired her for that. Think about that. 
she was told, you know, we don't we don't pay any attention to things like that. No one is interested in that. You should not have taught this. And technically, they didn't renew her contract, but they fired her. I spent 2016 being really furious with The Times and The Washington Post. Yeah, you should have been. And I was talking to, occasionally, to Carol Lenig, who's an investigative reporter yes. at The Post, yes. who's very good at what she does. I had been chief technology officer for Hillary, and she was asking me about the email server and about the person who set that up. Yeah, th this is the part of the core of what's wrong here with journalism, is we should be setting the agenda. That is the one bias we are allowed. This is important, and we're going to report it. This is not important, and we're not going to. I mean, that's our business. Just like if you're in fashion, it's your business to decide these are the fabrics and the colors and how long the skirt's going to be this year. That's your professional judgment, and you live or die by it. And yet, all the time, we let one side or the other focus us on something. And let me bring up the email server, because I think this is a very good example. Madeleine Albright, when she was Secretary of State, Colin Powell, when he was Secretary of State, and I believe a couple of others, used their own private email systems instead of the State Department system, because the State Department and all government email is done on a lowest price bid contract. James Comey, the FBI director, acknowledged publicly that the State Department email had been hacked repeatedly. I don't think many Americans understand that the Pentagon gets thousands and thousands of efforts to hack its computers every day, many of them by hostile foreign governments, some of them by pranksters and whatnot. Hillary Clinton's private email server, but he acknowledged in response to a question, the FBI could find no evidence on her server that anyone had broken into it. Well, I'm sorry. One of the things I do know from interviewing a lot of computer people is if you hack into a computer, there will be some record somewhere. I've never heard of a, of a, a spy or malware operation that once you know it happened, you find nothing. And so what that strongly suggests is the country was safer because of what she did. There's um, something called security by obscurity. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Although I think that foreign governments would have realized she was using her private server in her house because she sent various things. And then, you know, this whole thing about by Trump, she, she deleted 33,000 emails. She didn't delete a single email. That was done by professional staff. And we do know because of something that came out at the time, I forget from whom, but a perfectly credible source, among the things that were withheld or deleted by the professionals was apparently Chelsea Clinton approaching her wedding, had a meltdown over her dress or the cake or something like that. Gee, whoever heard of a prospective bride having a meltdown over their wedding? I mean, <laughs> that the story would be bride was perfectly cool all the way through a high profile wedding. And none of this got properly reported. And the reason is something cognitive scientists have studied. And that is whoever controls the narrative tends to win. So in a lawsuit, I've observed this covering trials, the lawyer who educates the judge, or if it's a jury trial, the jurors, even if the case should go against him, tends to win. Because if you're on the other side of the narrative, you not only have to punch holes in that narrative, that's been established, but then you have to show why your side is better, and that's a virtually impossible task. So too often, we let other people point us somewhere. Now, that the Washington Post did have two writers do a book called Trump Revealed, and it's got a lot of interesting information in it, 
but it, they're not investigative reporters. So they didn't have the stuff that was in my book, The Making of Donald Trump, about all his criminal behavior. And frankly, it, it is a book written to put you to sleep. Uh, newspapers, sometimes there's a story they feel they have to run. I wrote a story at the LA Times when I was in San Francisco for them about a doctoral dissertation on 206 Catholic priests and who they had sex with in what positions, how often, and where. And the screaming noises and complaints from the Catholic Church killed the story momentarily. A friend of mine at the New York Times then had the New York Times photo desk called the LA Times photo desk to ask if they could buy a picture of this priest, which alerted somebody at the LA Times they then took my story, turned it over to another reporter who wrote a piece that ran the LA Times at the time, page two and three were no ads, all journalism. And so in the bottom of the first column of the right-hand page, where you wouldn't tend to have your eye drawn, was a one-column head about the story. What it was really about was after the jump, and 85% of readers stop at the jump. And the headline, whatever it literally said, said, boring story, don't read this. <laughs> so they could say, we published this, but nobody read it. You're all of these years and three and a half books into Trump. I still read your reporting about the New York case and things like that. What do you wish people knew about him that they don't? Oh, I wish they understood that, that Donald Trump is a criminal. He's been a criminal his whole life. He's He lies and cheats and steals. He has no remorse about it because he has no belief that anything he does is wrong. He, he was asked by a radio host in 2016, Mr. Trump is a Christian. Can you tell us about the last time you asked God for forgiveness? Now, Donald constantly says he's a Christian, even though in one of his books, he spends six pages denouncing Christians as fools, idiots, and schmucks. And he declares there and in many other places, his life philosophy is revenge. Well, the whole message of the New Testament is a rejection of revenge. And I say this as somebody who's a non-believer, but I've lectured at the Harvard Divinity School, the Colgate Divinity School. I've spoken to national assemblies of major denominations. I've been a paid consultant to various denominations on inequality and moral issues. So he says revenge is his philosophy. Well, in response to the radio reporter's question, Trump said, ask God for forgiveness. Why would I do that? I've never done anything in my life that requires forgiveness. What more do you need to know about his character that he thinks he's perfect? So why do 30 to 40 percent of the country or whatever by his character or do they or what's your take on that yeah i've written a lot about this point there are three basic groups that support donald trump and they overlap the first group which i've written the most about are the 90 percent income wise the bottom 90 percent of americans in 2016 only got 50 weeks of income compared to 1973 now, I'm adjusting for inflation, but when you adjust for inflation, people got 4% less money. So just imagine you get to December 15th and, oh, by the way, you're going to work another two weeks, but you won't get paid. That's what it boiled down to. And on top of that, in 1973, most companies provided a pension and it was on top of your uh, pay. Now you save out of your salary. Your health care was entirely on top of your pay. 
Now, most, if not all of it, comes out of your salary. And for every dollar people added in home equity, they took on $2 of debt. So Americans were a lot worse off than 4% in the bottom 90%. In fact, their wages were higher in 73, that's the fundamental point, by about more than 4% than in 2016. So these are people who are like, why, why, why am I in all this economic stress? I go to work every day. How is this happening? And I explained that in my book, Perfectly Legal. When 37% of private sector workers wanted unions, that was the peak in 1973, about 80% of workers benefited. The LA Times paid premium wages to keep unions out, and they got to cream the market in the process. So both Republicans and Democrats took part in destroying private sector unions. Our competitors all have unions, by the way. In Germany, executives belong to unions. In America, if you do one hour a week of supervisory work, you're not supposed to be in the union. So first is the economic group, 90% of Americans, many of whom are, are worse off. The second group are people who want to make America white again. They really dislike what they're seeing about multiculturalism and diversity and gay people, et cetera, et cetera. And Trump has given them permission to speak out. The, the phrase political correctness, which is long before Trump, was really a complaint about, I want to use slurs about people I don't like, and I'll, I'll get fired from my job if I do. And Donald said, it's okay. You can call people whatever you want to call them. The third group are the fake Christians, the faux, F-A-U-X, Christians. These are people who will tell you they're Christians, but they don't believe anything has to do with Christianity. They don't understand what's in their Bible, New Testament or old. And in fact, Newsweek did a article about a month ago that pastors said that they have parishioners coming to them and saying, why are you teaching this turn the other cheek, be meek, care for the poor? I want to do what Donald Trump says. That's what our church should be. Our church should be about Donald Trump. Get revenge, attack people, kill people who've done something you think did something wrong without a trial. This is very deeply disturbing. It also goes to this lack of reading skill, because reading involves critical thinking. Let me just digress for a second to say, you know, in a number of high schools across America, I have found students, including ones I've taught at Syracuse, who tell me they were never assigned to read a novel in high school. Instead, the teacher would show the movie. Well, if you read To Kill a Mockingbird, you create your own Atticus Finch. If you see the movie, you see Gregory Peck. And novels help us understand what sociologists call, with the capital letters, the other, capital T, capital O. That's being largely lost. Very, very few young people have any moral education. Uh, my parents were stone-cold atheists, but they made me go to Sunday school. I had to go to the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Methodists. I didn't have to go to the Baptists. Everywhere else I had to go, I had to go get Catholic training. I had to go to a synagogue because they said, you want to understand America, you have to understand religion. That's why these religious groups have hired me to write reports or consult about moral and ethical issues and inequality, the economic side of that as well. And so Donald's support is among these groups which overlap. And here's the real problem for Joe Biden or anybody else. Once people get taken by a con artist, it's really hard to admit that you got taken because it makes you look stupid. 
And so people will cling on to this. You will see stories in the newspaper every now and then. A man thought he had saved a couple million dollars for retirement, and he retires one day, and he sits down to go through his finances, and he finds out his wife lost it all in a Nigerian prince scam, and he shoots himself. I wrote about Erwin Schiff, who told people, you don't have to pay taxes, it's voluntary. And eventually what came out is his psychiatrist notes were put in the court record. He had been swindled by a con artist. He and his clients, rich clients in Connecticut, had lost all their money. And he couldn't bring to blame himself for not realizing he'd been had by this con artist. So he blamed the government. And he died in prison at the end of the day over this. So that what part of Trump's great hold. And when you tell people, as I've done to a number of people in the last couple of weeks, I was overseas, but I ran into Americans here and there, uh, that Donald Trump had called for executing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, for doing something entirely appropriate, by the way. And the people who were Trumpers said, oh, he never said, he never said that. I said, he said it in writing. No, 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 he, he wouldn't say that. Or, well, then he deserved it. One of those two. Instead of, oh my God, what? And then finally, I think that the smartest observation anybody has made lately was Senator Mitt Romney when he announced he's not going to seek another term. Romney said, the awful truth is that millions of people in my party, the Republican Party, don't believe in democracy. It seems like it's going that way, doesn't it? Yes. I spoke twice at the um, Global Investigative Journalism Conference in Sweden last month. And in the panel on the role of journalism in democracy, somebody in the audience said, well, you're all speaking as if journalists should be in favor of democracy. Isn't that a, a bias? Isn't that a prejudice? Isn't that wrong? And I said, you know, I'm glad you asked that question. I think it's a really good question. Dictators by their nature are against journalism. What they want is propaganda. They want the official version of events. And you cannot have a free society that way. So are we biased in favor of individual liberty and the concept that as a group we have freedom? Yeah, we are. We'll own that. Dictatorships by their very nature are anti-freedom. Why is it that all dictators at the end of the game have killed people in their inner circle? Because as they go around killing people to maintain their power, they get paranoid and suspicious. And if they don't preserve their position, they're likely to get killed. And by the way, if you're listening to this, there's a wonderful movie, a dark comedy called The Death of Stalin. It's the kind of movie it's worth watching two or three times so you get more and more of the subtlety. But essentially, when Stalin died, all of the people at the top, like Khrushchev, General Zhukov from World War II and the others, they're all terrified of what's going to happen and what follows. And well, it's it's a fictionalized account, the underlying truth is very much there. David, I confess that I am upset at this moment that I only have this much time with you. I wonder if we could sometime continue this because I have so many other things I want to ask you. I would love to do it with you again, especially after I get my next book out, which proposes an entirely new tax system that will work. I read that. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Yes. US and every other modern country. It won't work in Honduras and Malawi, but it'll work in, in Europe, America, large parts of Asia. And it's been gone over by a wide variety of experts, tax attorneys, accountants, business executives, private business owners, every one of whom says, oh, this would be great. This would work. 
And they all then say, but it'll never happen because the people who profit off the tax system and many individuals and corporations, well, they turn money over to the government. The way that it happens, they actually make a profit and they're just giving back part of the profit as taxes. They'll fight this. And my answer to that is real change in America always comes from the bottom. When preachers were saying it is God's plan that little children work in the factories and the people who want child labor laws are the agents of the devil, we got them because people morally understood that was wrong. Women got the right to vote in America. They had it in the beginning, but they got it in the, in the United States Constitution because men voted to give it to them. They were the only ones who could. And they did so because from the bottom up, they built a case for this. And if we can have a tax system that is incredibly more efficient, will raise more money at lower rates, will redirect a lot of brain power to useful things, will increase wealth across the board. I mean, people who are profligate are always going to be profligate, but people who play by the rules will do well, and you won't file tax returns anymore. It's all possible because of the digital economy. There are lots of things yet I had to work through, but when I write this book, which I hope to have almost no numbers in it until the end, because when people read numbers, they stop reading. So all concepts, large, larger, bigger, maybe twice as much, things like that, but not, not uh, the kind of numbers I usually use. It would really have an enormously beneficial impact on the, all Western civilization and reducing human misery. I'd love to talk to you about that when the book comes out. I will definitely follow up on that. Is there something that I should have asked you at this stage that I didn't? No. I mean, we spend more time probably about my career than is useful to people. But uh, No, I think it's quite interesting. In the long run, you know, civilization tends to prevail. There are terrible periods. You know, the Dark Ages, as Monty Python jokes about, the rise of the Nazis and the Italian fascists and the, the Japanese warmongers. But over the long haul, human beings improve. It's just not a steady line. It's up and down. And what's essential for liberty and freedom is that we think about these issues. We're active citizens and we're educated. People have to be educated and informed. When I went to college, the theory being taught about the Constitution, which I think is the best theory, is that this was a revolt of the aristocratic, meaning both wealthy and educated classes against oppression. And the results of that have been very good. That Not perfect. My goodness, not perfect. Far from that, but, but really good when you look at the whole scope of human history. And so uh, we can do better and we will do better as long as people don't give up and say, just give me a dictator. That's a great note on which to end today. Anything else you want to say? No. Okay. That was David K. Johnson. He is at dcreport.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. 
You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.